to humans, leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you're walking, wherever you're sitting. Thank you so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to this episode. You will not regret it. Today's guest is the wonderfully authentic Paul Greatrix. He is the registrar of Nottingham University, which to most of us listeners here is the equivalent of the COO. So Nottingham University is one of the UK's biggest with over 8,000 staff and about 35,000 students and 750 million turnover. So it's, it's definitely no small outfit. Now I've talked to Paul a few times over the last month and believe me, he is very much an imaginal leader, although I'm not sure he knows it. So Paul, you are. And it's been really, really interesting to really deep dive into the complexity of his job. And I think that you're going to learn a lot from his stories at a time when more than ever, we all need to be creating environments in which humans are in their best state to learn and be curious and all of the things that we talk about. But before I introduce you to Paul, I want to say a massive, massive, massive thank you for all of you that have sent feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see more of and how I can improve the show. It's really important to me as well to hear your stories. And I've just got to tell you that I had dinner with a friend recently, and he's the VP in a very, very large and very complex UK organization. He, he told me that he's listened to every single episode of Humans Leading Humans so far. And he told me that it's changed the way that he leads completely. He said that hearing the authentic stories and the trials and the tribulations and the learnings and the successes of my wonderful, wonderful guests, thank you guests, you know, the leaders, the behavioral scientists, listening to your stories, listening to these stories has given him the confidence to push back against those mental models of normal, how things have to be done, and to be more committed to create environments in which his teams thrive. And that means so much to me. And I'd love to hear your stories. I mean, what have you heard that has helped you, that's given you the courage and the confidence to be a more imaginal leader? And so anyway, I want to hear about them all. So please head over to catskeely.com and sign up to the Humans Leading Humans newsletter or head over to wearebeep.com to find out about how we make cultural and operational transformation enjoyable and fun with the least pain possible. But now, let me introduce you to the wonderfully warm Paul Greatrix. 
Paul Greatrix. I'm very, 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 very excited to invite you to be a guest on Humans Leading Humans. Let me tell you, dear listeners, why Paul has been invited. So many of my previous guests have talked about the importance of education and how education is changing. And, you know, it's a responsibility of all employers to create an environment where people can learn. And so I thought we really need to have somebody from the academic world because there's nothing more important than education right now, right? And so I reached out to three different people and said, who is the best leader across universities in the UK today? Three of them mentioned Paul Greatrix. So that's why you are a guest on Humans Leading Humans. So Paul, tell us, how did you end up as the COO, or what I would call the COO of Nottingham University? Well, first of all, Cass, it's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm you know, amazed that anyone would recommend me for anything, frankly. But um, We love modesty, Paul. <laughs> well, my, my, my job title is a slightly uh, obscure one. It is registrar, and it comes from, I think, you know, the historic thing about registering students. So that's where it comes from. But it's analogous to a, a, a COO in a, in a corporation. And I've been here at Nottingham as registrar for almost 15 years at the time we're recording this, So, which feels like an extraordinarily long time. But I've only ever worked in universities I've uh, or uh, a higher education. After uh, graduating from Edinburgh a long, long time ago with a degree in English language in which I studied many, many interesting subjects from Middle English to Old Norse. I uh, spent a year working for a student political outfit in Scotland. Uh, That looked like career suicide. So I ended up applying for all the jobs I could. And the first job I landed was at uh, what was then North Staffordshire Poly, uh, working as an admin assistant in the School of Computing. It's now Staffordshire University, a really terrific university in Stoke-on-Trent. And since then, I've worked at other universities, UEA in Norwich and the University of Warwick, and then ended up here 15 years ago. So I've done most of the jobs in central and school-based administration in universities. You know, it's one of those areas that is probably invisible to most people who listen to this podcast, but it's uh, there's about 200,000 or so people who work in administration in universities uh, across the UK. So it's, it's a big area. And, uh, you know, I've been privileged to work in universities throughout my career. And one of the reasons I love it, and I will say this now, is because you're surrounded by people who are cleverer than you, certainly cleverer than me, um, academic colleagues who, who challenge everything. And obviously, that can be really stimulating and exciting, as well as often quite frustrating. But also, you're surrounded by people who are younger than you and enthusiastic about learning and looking to make the most of the opportunities that universities present on their campuses through their studies, through their engagement with each other, and through making the most of a university experience. It makes it the most vibrant and exciting environment to work in, and it's never, ever dull, never a dull moment as a registrar. Never a dull moment, but I've we've talked a couple of times before this interview, and I had very little idea of the complexity of what you're dealing with, And also, I mean, one of the reasons that we do this podcast is to equip leaders with the skills to be able to create cultures where people feel happy to change and are less resistant to change. So I'd be really grateful if you just explain to our listeners, what does it mean to be the registrar of a large university? So our university is quite a big one in a UK context. We have about just under 8,000 staff. 
Um, we've got about 35,000 students most of the time on our campus. We also have two campuses overseas, one in China, uh, in Ningbo, just south of Shanghai, and one just outside KL in Malaysia, where we have many more students and staff as well. But our UK operation, it's about a £750 million turnover, and we've got you know, four main campuses in the UK, uh, including our kind of flagship campus at University Park, which has been here for almost 100 years. So, and it's a, it's a big and complex organisation. So my part of it is managing a, a team of professional services staff, dealing with most of the student-facing stuff, but also dealing with, you know, the support for students and support for staff around welfare, sport, careers development, all that kind of thing, but also all the administrative stuff around records, graduation and things, and strategic planning, and support for the the, the governing structures of the university as well. So advising our vice chancellor, who's our chief executive, and our governing body, who's like our board of directors. So, you know, it's kind of big portfolio, and there's an awful lot going on. But I think the, going back to what I said earlier, the nature of a university means that A, we are very long-term in our outlook because we're educating people over a number of years, but also our academics are conducting research, which may take 5, 10, 20 years actually to come to fruition. So we're fundamentally a a long-game organisation. And that means that when we are introducing change, and we have to constantly change both as a result of external pressures, but also to try and get ourselves into a position where we're better able to respond to the the markets we're operating in. We have to do a lot of change. And that can, you know, create tensions within the organization. There is always resistance uh, to change, as many of us, as I'm sure, will be familiar with. But we're no different from any other organization in that regard. You know, we, we have to progress. We have to ensure that we've got the structures, the systems, the organization, and the culture to enable us to respond to what is actually a rapidly moving external environment. And that can be difficult when people are very focused on long-term issues and in thing, indeed things where they would rather that no one interfered with what they were doing. And that issue of autonomy and freedom for academic colleagues to pursue their research uh, untroubled by external constraints is actually a really, really powerful driver within a university context. It's one of those things that makes it extraordinarily interesting and challenging to work here. And, and one of the things that every corporation that we work with is doing is trying to make sure that they're as customer centric as humanly possible and that they're developing loyalty and communities and all of those things how do we make sure that our users feel that we're listening to them they're giving them and and your challenge is and i hadn't realized this until we saw actually more complex still than most companies isn't it as far as user centricity goes I, I think that's right, because we're dealing with uh, an ever-changing customer base, right? Because we have constant turnover year on year of our, of our customers. And I should say, actually, customer is a, you know, it's a challenging word in a university context as well. There, was those, there will be those who resist it. One of the things government has sought to do is to actually get universities to adopt the language and attitudes of customer responsiveness. And, you know, and I think that that works to an extent insofar as we're trying to respond to the, the needs and wants of, uh, of a student community. 
which expects us to deliver services in a way that they experience services in every other aspect of their lives. However, there is something different about the educational experience, right, where the product is unknowable, uh, the outcome is unpredictable, and actually it requires a massive level of input from the customer themselves, uh, which if they don't make, they're not going to get what they want. So it makes it a really, really complicated mix of, uh, you know, of challenges and tensions that we are all coping with all the time. And quite often, you know, people are disputing the premise of the debate in the first place. So that does make it, uh, yeah, a bit different, I think. And it must be super interesting with your job, the fact that all of the stuff that Amy Edmondson talked about in her episode and Dan Ariely talked about in his episode, which is about the CREATE framework, and about the fact that actually people learn and connect and communicate better if they're in a situation of psychological safety. Whereas you've got this tension about the, the necessary stress, I suppose. I'm, I'm interested in this because every corporation across the world is trying to figure out how they create a culture which is promoting and embedding curiosity and continuous learning. I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, because fundamentally the academic journey is one of curiosity, right? And and actually providing an environment where both academics can pursue the things that will make a difference to the future of the planet and indeed students can pursue things which interest them in terms of advancing their growth journey as well is absolutely important. And that's why a university environment is set up to try and uh, enable that all of those things to happen. And my job fundamentally, I see it as trying to create the conditions for success for all of those people within, within our university, right? So trying to support communities of learners who are able to benefit from being surrounded by you know, the finest minds and the finest resources to enable them to prosper in terms of either research or learning, right? And so, you know, my core role as I see it is trying to, you know, minimize the negative disruption to that activity and support the creative disruption to those activities to, to enable people to get the best of the opportunities that we provide. And of course, bringing all those brilliant people together, you get outcomes that you couldn't possibly have dreamed of. And that's the, the again, the really exciting thing about working in a university environment. And must take you being very agile in the way you do things. Uh, and so <laughs> agility, I have to say, is not something that we are accused of very often. I mean, it's something that we aspire to, right? And we are planning yeah. for, but actually, you know, universities can be pretty ponderous in terms of their response to issues. You know, we're legendary for our, our committee culture. So part of the challenge for us is actually the empowerment of people to exploit their freedom and autonomy to take decisions and to act within parameters in order to deliver that supportive learning and research environment for students and staff. Oh, yes. And therefore, the CREATE framework, which is all about the environments in which humans are the best they can be, is more relevant to you in many ways than I suppose it would be many leaders. So that said, I pass you the CREATE framework and I ask you to think of just three of the experiments that you've done, of the learnings that you've had in this very complex organization. And I can't wait to figure out which of those three you're going to choose to tell us. 
Well, let me story number one. Let me let me start with the first one. And I have to say, I do think that the create framework is actually rather useful, a very useful lens, in fact, to see some of the developments that I've just been describing and some of the wider issues that we face at the university. But the one I want, I want, I want to pick first, if I, if I may, is actually something that you know I've felt passionately about for many many years, and set up here at the University of Nottingham not long after I started here, which was essentially a, a trainee scheme for graduates. Now, I appreciate in the world of business, right, this is very commonplace, right? Having graduate trainee schemes for people who've recently graduated in order to give them experiences of working in a particular work environment uh, and then to grow them into working within within a particular business. But in higher education, this was, this was pretty novel, right? So I started at Nottingham and I thought, well, actually, what I want is to grow people who can potentially be the people that are taken on my job in in 15, 20 years time, right? So I got together with a number of colleagues from other universities and said, well, can we not establish a national scheme, a national graduate training scheme for higher education? So with colleagues from other universities, we established a national program called Ambitious Futures. And I must stress at this stage, whilst you know I helped start it off, a lot a load of other people did an awful lot more of the work than I ever did. You know, I was kind of swanning around taking the glory for it. But what I was trying to do was to bring together this this coalition of universities that were interested in creating the the next generation of leaders within our sector. And what we did therefore was create a scheme which enabled people to get experience not only of different roles in their own university, but different roles in other universities as well and create you know, a cadre of individuals who would genuinely be the leaders of tomorrow. Now, sadly, COVID put an end, a temporary end, I hope, to that national scheme. But in the time it was running, we had nearly, I think, 150 trainees come through that program nationally, all of whom have since, uh, almost all of whom have since progressed to new roles within universities. And all of whom were just outstandingly talented individuals. And so I'm really confident that, you know, actually these people will be the ones who will be taking over my job in the years ahead and will be leading other university administrations um, in the years ahead as well. But it was one of those things where it felt so much like the right thing to do. I couldn't believe that no one else was doing it. And uh, I couldn't understand why others weren't as enthusiastic as I was about it, because it was like drawing teeth, frankly, to get some of the universities on board, which was deeply distressing. But it, it has had a hiatus. I'm, it will come back. I'm confident of that. What I, what I would say is that um, I do think that the issue of succession, and I don't mean the TV programme, interesting though that is, the, the issue of succession and growing the next generation, I think, you know, it came to me as, possibly one of the most important things one can do. Uh, we see it time and time again where, where organisations really hit a dip after a, you know, a, a senior figure uh, resigns or retires or moves on to somewhere else. And I, I think, therefore, that strength and depth, that creation of a succession plan is hugely important. And having choice and talent fighting to get to the top table is massively beneficial for everyone. Keeps us all on the toes as well. And so... I'm going to ask a question which will be really interesting. One of the things that we do, one of the programs we run is for high potential leaders. So in corporate, that would be C minus two. And it is exactly about succession. How can we get a new generation of leaders to behave in a more agile way, in a more collaborative way? And especially given your comment on agility and the fact that universities aren't known for that, what did you do to make sure that that cohort of 
fabulous new emerging talent actually were behaving and connecting in different ways. And that the second question probably would be, what would you do differently again when you pick it back up? And what was your kind of key learning? Those are excellent questions, Katz. And I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm guessing other people listening to this will be shouting out, you fool, you should, you should have done differently. But for me, the key thing is to get a, a, a sustainable group of institutions together from the outset, right? We spent most of our time chasing people to try and keep them on board or try and recruit new members to offset those that had dropped out. So actually being confident upfront about uh, the sustainable model. And also our, our overheads were probably too high, which just put people off. So, uh, you know, my starting point would be get every, get everyone on board at the beginning. In terms of the, the, the trainees themselves, what was fabulous about them is their ability to self-organize, right? And, and actually you give them a part to play in, right? And they, they, they define their rules and they define their game. And actually the ways in which they connected with each other across institutions, the way in which they came together in, in, in groups to learn from each other, most of it, you know, a little bit was supported initially, but most of it was self-generated, actually meant that they, you know, they saw themselves as future leaders, right? They, they were hungry to, to learn, right? And that, this is the, the really important thing, I think. They, they, you know, they hoovered up everything that they could. They were fearless in their willingness to both engage with, challenge, and chase senior leaders across the sector, right? You know, they had the confidence to, to knock on anyone's door. And I think that, that for me, you know, was it was the real signal of the success of this. Actually, you know, we were, you know, we had people who you knew were going to progress and actually knew how to make the connections and uh, and actually to learn. And that really set them aside from their peers. Uh, it really did by by a long way. I, I do want to do more of it. Um, and it may be that they're the ones who will actually be able to lead it in the future rather than me. And they'll have much better ideas about how to do it properly. Brilliant answer. Brilliant answer. Okay, story number two. So the second story is an interesting reflection, I think, of, of, of university culture. Shortly after I, I started at Notting, I was conscious that the and there has been this issue in universities for a long time, which you know many working in the world of business will be will be aware of, which is a, you know, a concern that you know students who come out with their degrees in in chemistry or mechanical engineering or business or art history, right, often don't always have the full supporting package that they need to hit the ground running in a job uh, in a corporate environment on, on day one. And so um, part of what we wanted to do, therefore, was to provide opportunities for students to acquire more skills that they would benefit from after graduation, which was additional to what they were learning through their core curriculum. Um, and so we thought, well, this is controversial again, right? Because if you start asking academics, you know, what skills do their students need? So they will say they acquire everything they need through the curriculum, right? So all the the, the essays, the labs, the, the exams that they're doing are actually testing the skills that they need in order to prosper afterwards. But actually, I would argue, I would agree with that to an extent, but what you need to provide them with is additional material. So we thought, right, well, rather than have that argument for 15 years about whether or not that's a good idea, let's just create some modules and test them out on students and see if they actually like it and value it. So myself and a couple of colleagues 
tried a couple of modules out with a group of students in a hall of residence, right? And, and just said, what do you think? They loved it. We then grew it the following year to a bigger group within other halls of residence. And suddenly we had a couple of hundred student advocates wanting more and more and more. And after that point, it grew momentum. And my academic colleague, who was the academic leader of the program, was able credibly within the university community to say, this is the plan, this is the program, these are the modules, and this is what our students want and need for the world of work after they graduate. So that was, you know, about 14, 15 years ago. We're now in a position where we've got about 3,000 students a year doing these modules. We've got hundreds of modules available to them to choose from. And these are extracurricular, right? They get credit for it, they get assessed on it, um, but then they get it recorded on their university transcript. Um, but many of these modules are actually provided by local or indeed national businesses, right? So, you know, Enterprise Rent-A-Car do a module, there are banks doing modules, there are local businesses doing modules as well. And, you know, students, lap it up they love it and it's an additional bonus additional thing so the nottingham advantage award as it's known um actually gives them all these additional skills and it was for me it was it you know because i'm not an academic right i have a doctorate but i'm not not an academic i've never really taught so for me this was a way of of uh, infiltrating the academic program uh surreptitiously a bit of guerrilla warfare within a university community but it was about providing something that I thought students wanted and needed and that they would value and indeed their future employers would value. And so it's turned out it's been hugely popular. And I'm, again, you know, kind of really proud to have been associated uh, with this change programme. Incredibly. It's incredibly full thinking. 15 well, years. Uh, I, what, 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 what I should say, Kat, is that in I tried it out in two previous universities and failed, right? So it was really last chance saloon for me in terms of this, right? But it, that was one of the reasons for trying it this way rather than trying the, the full frontal assault on the academy. So going back to the CREATE framework, um, the first cohort to make sure that that was successful, tell me about how did you, how did you make sure that the people who signed up were rewarded and recognised? How did you keep them? How did you get them excited about this whole new proposition? Um, they knew that they were um, brave pioneers, right? And we told them that whatever they did, we would we would give them a certificate, even though it wouldn't have formal credit associated with it. I think we gave them quite a lot of pizza um, as well um, as part of this. So there was an element <laughs> of uh, you know uh, of gift uh, and bribery around this, but. Um, and I, I think that they, you know, they just engaged with it enthusiastically because it was not, you know, they were hungry for additional learning as well as for uh, for free food. So they were a great reflection of the kind of students we, you know, we we have and we prize at Nottingham in that they were enthusiastic to learn, even though there wasn't credit associated with it, they were still keen to take take part. And um, I'm enormously grateful for them for doing so. So they self-selected that first crew, would you? Uh, they, 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 they did. They were all from one hall of residence, but it was a, a, a kind of subset of volunteers from, from within that hall. Yeah. Brilliant. I was just thinking back to in one of the early episodes of uh, this podcast, a guy called Steve Roberts at Barclays was talking about the fact that actually he wanted to start embedding a new behaviour. And so he gave two young entrants uh, a wee badge, and he said, looking back at the badges now, they're a bit crap, but it was a badge. And their job was to go and find ambassadors. And so basically it was 
them finding the people who or seeing the people who were definitely the right kind of people to join this yep. little thing. And yep. then within a year, these two youngins with very little budget and these crap badges had managed to recruit like hundreds and hundreds of people across the global network because they really loved the idea of being testers and, you know, and I, 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 absolutely, I absolutely get that. And, and, and I do think that there is really something about providing particularly students with the opportunities to explore, to play, to create within the environment that we're, we're, we're offering. So, you know, we do that in lots of other ways as well, you know, through student societies, through money we give from donors, which is allocated to students with great ideas for projects to, to, to help particularly uh, disadvantaged communities in the city and the region. So there are lots of different ways we, we recognise and support student, you know, for want of a better word, entrepreneurial activity, right? Um, and I think this is social entrepreneurialism. I'm, I'm talking about as much as, you know, commercial entrepreneurialism. And that's just one of the great things about this environment. It's you, you know, it supports, encourages, nurtures, and this kind of stuff flourishes within a university environment, which is, again, another reason that it's so exciting and energising. It is, but on the other hand, so I'm just thinking back to my conversation with Dan Ariely, who was my last guest, who was talking about the fact that in most corporates that he works with, it's not about actually how to motivate people, it's how to stop destroying motivation, because actually in most corporates, they are desperately trying to kind of reduce risk and therefore they destroy motivation, bureaucracy, levels, hierarchy, get in the way of people being the best they can be. So I'm just wondering, how do you get over that? Because having worked with universities in the past, yeah. most often around how they relate to corporates and how they relate to communities, um, I know that there is by nature within a university a, a quite a strict hierarchy. The hierarchy issue is, is an interesting one because it, yes, it can get in the way. You know, the 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 academic titles, professor, associate professor, doctor, you know, all that kind of stuff, pro vice chancellor, etc. It can, you know, look really cumbersome. Um, I have to say, I think that you know, universities are are, are are a lot less focused on that now than focused on you know people's actual track record and capability uh, and and ideas and ambition you know for, for, for change so I mean bureaucracy universities are bureaucratic places right um, but part of the challenge we face is people assuming that they can't do things because there is this bureaucracy which is going to stop them right and so don't before they even try they they accept defeat and that's massively frustrating right because again part of my job in creating the conditions of success is actually to protect the academic heartland from these worst excesses of external regulatory intervention right to try and fend them off to try and um ensure that we have internal systems which are about you know reducing the impact of that external regulation rather than enhancing it however there is something about a university community which always looks to make things better by elaborating it, right? So we will always elaborate stuff. So we, you know, we are often our own worst enemies in, in, in you know, kind of gold plating things, right? When actually what we need to do is just make them basic and work and stop worrying about them so we can get on with the real business, you know? And that's, and I'm sure that's commonplace in other sectors as well, but it's very, very common in universities. 
Yes, and I think I think we see a lot working with the companies that we work with that actually people make an assumption about bureaucracy and therefore they feel they can't do something yeah. when the senior leadership are going, uh, no, 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 we want you to do things. Yeah. So I guess there's probably something there about the fact that you're behaving in a way whereby the people who see you as a leader see the way you're behaving and therefore feel braver because that, that, that that's what i would hope and, and and i think that we often talk about empowerment right and i do think it's is you know hugely important right but actually genuinely enabling and genuinely empowering people is difficult to do right because there are all sorts of you know, assumed and, you know, apparently visible constraints from it, right? So for me, it's about being clear about what the kind of boundaries for action are and saying, you know, within these very broad and liberal boundaries, you've got the freedom, right? You've got the power, you have the opportunity, the autonomy to determine how we do these things in order to deliver the best service to our academic colleagues or to our students, right? And, but, you know, it is it is difficult to create that environment where that happens consistently across the board. And that's one of my, you know, my biggest challenges, I think. And I, th- I think it's interesting. One of the things that I've taken away from one of the conversations we've had so far is the way that you go, I tried it and it failed. I tried it and it failed. And I tried it again. And, and it worked. And so, I mean, all of the people that are part of your team or whatever level are looking at that and thinking he's just trying stuff which then empowers them to go, I can try stuff because it's just going, let's see if it works. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, I, I do fail quite a lot. There's no such thing as failing, only yeah. learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Just fail, fail better next time. Exactly. You can never fail. Yeah, this is one of, there's only one failure and that's failing to learn. This is one of my one of my strap lines. Paul, love that story number three. So the final one is uh, is another story of failure. Um, but um, uh, one of my big challenges still is and has been since arriving at Nottingham is is trying to find ways. You know, because I've got a, a very big and dispersed uh, staff team. You know, it's about kind of fifteen hundred people distributed around different parts of the university. And one of my challenges, I thought, well, how can I? How can I communicate most effectively with colleagues? And, you know, trying to look for different ways. So I thought, right, one of the things I'll do is I'll start I'll, I'll start writing some blogs, right? Because that's, and this was 15 years ago, right? So it's it's going back a bit, right? It wasn't even trendy then, right? So uh, I thought I'll start writing some, uh, writing, writing some blogs. And also I was very conscious that um, I needed to write things, right? Because I was worried that I'd forget how to how to write stuff because all I was doing was was editing what other people had written. So I wanted to write things. And I thought I'll start a blog. Anyway, I, I started blogging. And then um, after uh, a wee while, realized that in fact, no one was reading this right um or rather no one in the university was reading it right but people outside the university were reading it because they thought it was more interesting than any of my colleagues did so so i thought okay right forget that. I'll, I'll you know make a virtue out of necessity then I'll, I'll communicate with that audience instead because they're the ones who are actually interested so i i started writing uh, more frequently and then um you know kind of built up a a, a a bigger audience and then became part of a kind of wider higher education community built around an organization called Wonky, which is a slightly odd name, but it's a community of you know higher education 
wonks and enthusiasts who just love higher education. And, uh, you know, I was kind of very much the kind of slightly embarrassing uncle um, in that group of, you know, young enthusiasts. But nevertheless, it, it, I, I found it genuinely liberating to be part of a group that were so excited about talking about higher education policy, impact analysis, all the rest of it uh, at a national level and, and an international level. And it was, it, I, you know, so I found it really quite stimulating and, and exciting, um, uh, even though I complete, I found other ways to communicate with colleagues since then. But the, the, the blogging thing gave me a, you know, a profile and an energy, I think, that, you know, I'd never, ever, ever expected to get. But it, it's just interesting for me that it emerged from, you know, yet another failure. <laughs> to communicate effectively with my colleagues. And and again, I mean, what you've just said there is there was no failure, just an unexpected outcome. And I, I think one of the things that's really interested me about that is the fact that it's very easy as a leader of a large organization to become very inward focused and miss how other people are doing things. And what you've done there is to put yourself and your thinking out there and asking other people what they're doing. Actually, that conversation, that communication outside your own organization must be incredibly energizing. Absolutely. And um, it enabled me to be, you know, creative in a way that I I, I hadn't necessarily been. And then, but I, I found that, that 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 feeds back. It also means that whenever I'm interviewing anyone for a job, you know, they, they think they know me already and, and they've got a kind of <laughs> idea about uh, who I am, which, you know, you know, I am who I am. I mean, I don't pretend to be anyone else, um, which hopefully doesn't disappoint them too much. But it does mean that, yeah, people, you know, people have heard of me and people who know me in our, in our, you know, kind of relatively uh, narrow sector. But I, I find that just absolute, an absolute joy when meeting people and they've read my stuff. It just gives you something to connect with and to talk about. And you've immediately got something about about higher education to talk about. I, I have got a reputation for doing loads of silly stuff as well. Um, you know, uh, you know, doing funny stories about odd things that happen on university campuses, doing nonsense about university league tables, and just doing silly things as well. But for me, that's part of what, you know, that kind of fun, that humor is something, you know, not everyone finds it funny, but I do. But um, is the, is the, is the thing that, you know, genuinely makes this sector, you know, more interesting, right? You know, you, if you can't laugh about stuff, it is much harder to be enthusiastic and, and creative, right? You've got to have fun while you're doing it. And that's a really important part of what I was trying to do through some of my admittedly very throwaway writing. And Paul, you know, being able to communicate is massively, it's core to leadership and humour is human. And that's why you're a human leading humans, because people can see who you are. I've had a couple of long conversations with you and I already know you're really authentic. You don't mind talking about things you got wrong. You're completely happy with that. And it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I think, I think people are listening to this. Right now, when we're in a situation where many of us will probably live to 100 plus, we should all be creating environments where people are learning. I was talking to Chip Conley, who's going to be a guest in a couple of weeks, and he was talking about it's no longer lifelong learning. It's learning for long life. And yeah. it needs to start a university. And I think your entire attitude is exactly why three people said you need to talk to Paul. So before I've loved this, before we end, I'm very aware of the fact that you've got two more minutes left. What would you like to call your episode of Humans Being Humans? 
Well, there was a phrase I used earlier, which I I, I use sometimes when I'm trying to describe my role to people who don't, you know, immediately understand what what it is that the heck it is I do, which would be never a dull moment, right? I mean, I think the environment of a university is, uh, is never, ever dull for all the reasons that I've described because of the people there and the things that they do and the, the the constant change and challenge and the fun and the excitement and exuberance that particularly young people bring. So never a dull moment would be my title. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. I'm very aware of how busy you are, so I really, really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you Kat. So it's, it's, it's been an absolute joy and it's been great to, to talk to you and to also to to learn more about about the create framework which i you know personally have found really quite quite interesting and indeed very very useful i'm very very pleased to hear that have an amazing day paul thank you so much cheers thank you oh thank you paul i i loved that conversation and i knew i would and what stuck with me from that conversation I guess that even in the most bureaucratic hierarchical conversations with that incredibly complex mix of challenges and tensions, you can get change to stick and creating the right culture, the right environment is the most important thing to make that happen. And, you know, he talked about the fact that he sticks his neck out. He sticks to what he knows is right. Sometimes he has to adopt some guerrilla tactics, but that's okay. And he tries and he fails and he tries and he fails and he's quite happy to admit that. And you know, the best thing is then his teams see him being courageous and following his passion and they feel safe to do the same. So, you know, this is a guy who has found his way around bureaucracy by empowering people by breaking through those assumed and invisible constraints. And I think back to Gary Coombs episode about risk taking and empowerment. He's clear about these broad and liberal boundaries and empowers people to take informed risks. And I love the fact that he he kind of by mistake has understood the power of communication to consolidate your own thinking, but also of looking and learning from outside his organization. It's more important than we can talk about really, and you should be doing the same. And many, many, many of the leaders that I talk to get stuck in the rut of just looking inside their organization. There is so much to be learned from outside, so do it. And and the other thing, and you know that this is a big thing for me, he's not afraid of being playful. Dear leader, dear listener, are you courageous enough to have fun? Because it's not always easy, right? But humor is human. I loved that. You have been listening to humans, leading humans towards the future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. If you are not a member already, I'd suggest you become one. So head over to their website and a massive 
Massive thanks to the fantastic Superterrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how we support companies through cultural and operational transformation by unlocking the problem-solving potential of the people inside their organizations. If you loved this week's podcast, please pass it on to your friends and your colleagues who you think might need a shot of inspiration. Better still, if you're unlucky enough to have a boss doesn't quite get how to create environments where humans thrive, pass this on to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. And I look forward to seeing you for the next episode, which, by the way, will be with the amazing Chip Conley. Mm -hmm.